Section two of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Venice four. Even at first, when the vexatious sense of the city of the Doges, reduced to earning its living as a curiosity shop, was in its keenness, there was a great deal of entertainment to be got from lodging on Riva Schiavoni and looking out at the far shimmering lagoon. There was entertainment indeed in simply getting into the place and observing the queer incidents of a Venetian installation. A great many persons contribute indirectly to this undertaking, and it is surprising how they spring out at you during your novitiate to remind you that they are bound up in some mysterious manner with the constitution of your little establishment. It was an interesting problem, for instance, to trace the subtle connection existing between the niece of the landlady and the occupancy of the fourth floor. Superficially, it was none too visible, as the young lady in question was a dancer at the Fenice Theatre, or when that was closed at the Rossini, and might have been supposed absorbed by her professional duties. It proved necessary, however, that she should hover about the premises in a velvet jacket and a pair of black kid gloves with one little white button, as also that she should apply a thick coating of powder to her face, which had a charming oval and a sweet, weak expression, like that of most of the Venetian maidens, who was a general thing, it was not a peculiarity of the landlady's niece, are fond of besmearing themselves with flour. You soon recognise that it is not only the many twinkling lagoon you behold from a habitation on the river. You see a little of everything Venetian. Straight across, before my windows, rose the great pink mass of San Giorgio Maggiore, which has, for an ugly Palladian church, a success beyond all reason. It is a success of position, of colour, of the immense detached campanile tipped with a tall gold angel. I know not whether it is because San Giorgio is so grandly conspicuous, with a great deal of worn, faded-looking brickwork, but for many persons the whole place has a kind of suffusion of rosiness. Asked what may be the leading colour in the Venetian concert, we should inveterately say pink. And yet without remembering, after all, that this elegant hue occurs very often. It is a faint, shimmering, airy, watery pink. The bright sea light seems to flush with it, and the pale, whitish green of lagoon and canal to drink it in. There is indeed a great deal of very evident brickwork, which is never fresh or loud in colour, but always burnt out, as it were, always exquisitely mild. Certain little mental pictures rise before the collector of memories of the simple mention, written or spoken, of the places he has loved. When I hear, when I see, the magical name I have written above these pages, it is not to the great square that I think with its strange basilica and its high arcades, nor of the wide mouth of the Grand Canal with the stately steps and the well-poised dome of the Salute, it is not of the low lagoon, nor the sweet piazzetta, nor of the dark chambers of St. Mark's. 
I simply see a narrow canal in the heart of the city, a patch of green water and a surface of pink wool. The gondola moves slowly. It gives a great smooth swerve, passes under a bridge, and the gondolier's cry carried over the quiet water makes a kind of splash in the stillness. A girl crosses the little bridge, which has an arch like a camel's back, with an old shawl on her head which makes her characteristic and charming. You see her against the sky as you float beneath. The pink of the old wall seems to fill the whole place. It sinks even into the opaque water. Behind the wall is a garden, out of which the long arm of a white June rose, the roses of Venice are splendid, has flung itself by way of spontaneous ornament. On the other side of this small waterway is a great shabby façade of Gothic windows and balconies, balconies on which dirty clothes are hung, and under which a cavernous-looking doorway opens from a low flight of slimy water steps. It is very hot and still. The canal has a queer smell, and the whole place is enchanting. It is poor work, however, talking about the colour of things in Venice. The fond spectator is perpetually looking at it from his window, when he's not floating about with that delightful sense of being for the moment a part of it, which any gentleman in a gondola is free to entertain. Venetian windows and balconies are a dreadful lure, and while you rest your elbows on these cushioned ledges, the precious hours fly away. But in truth, Venice isn't in fair weather, a place for concentration of mind. The effort required for sitting down to a writing table is heroic, and the brightest page of manuscript looks dull beside the brilliancy of your milieu. All nature beckons you forth and murmurs to you sophistically, that such hours should be devoted to collecting impressions. Afterwards, in ugly places, at unprivileged times, you can convert your impressions into prose. Fortunately for the present proser, the weather wasn't always fine. The first month was wet and windy, and it was better to judge of the matter from an open casement than to respond to the advances of persuasive gondoliers. Even then, however, there was a constant entertainment in the view. It was all cold colour, and the steel grey floor of the lagoon was stroked the wrong way by the wind. Then there were charming cool intervals, when the churches, the houses, the anchored fishing boats, the whole gently curving line of the river, seemed to be washed with a pearly white. Later it all turned warm warm to the eye as well as to the other senses. After the middle of May, the whole place was in a glow. The sea took on a thousand shades, but there were only infinite variations of blue, and those rosy walls I just spoke of began to flush in the thick sunshine. Every patch of colour, every yard of weather-stained stucco, every glimpse of nestling garden or daub of sky above a calais, began to shine and sparkle, began, as the painters say, to compose. The lagoon was streaked with odd currents, which played across it like huge, smooth finger marks. The gondolas multiplied and spotted it all over. 
every gondola and gondolier looking at a distance precisely like every other. There is something strange and fascinating in this mysterious impersonality of the gondola. It has an identity when you are in it, but thanks to their all being of the same size, shape and colour, and the same deportment and gait, it has none, or as little as possible, as you see it pass before you. From my windows on the river there was always the same silhouette, the long, black, slender skiff, lifting its head and throwing it back a little, moving yet seeming not to move, with the grotesquely graceful figure on the poop. This figure inclines as may be more to the graceful or to the grotesque, standing in the second position of the dancing master, but indulging from the waist upward in a freedom of movement which that functionary would deprecate. One may say, as a general thing, that there is something rather awkward in the movement of even the most graceful gondolier, and something graceful in the movement of the most awkward. In the graceful men, of course, the grace predominates, and nothing can be finer than the large, firm way in which, from their point of vantage, they throw themselves over their tremendous oar. It has the boldness of a plunging bird and the regularity of a pendulum. Sometimes, as you see this movement in profile, in a gondola that passes you, see as you recline on your own low cushions the arching body of the gondolier lifted up against the sky, it has a kind of nobleness which suggests an image on a Greek frieze. The gondolier at Venice is your very good friend, if you choose him happily, and on the quality of the personage depends a good deal that of your impressions. He is a part of your daily life, your double, your shadow, your complement. Most people, I think, either like their gondolier or hate him. And if they like him, like him very much. In this case, they take an interest in him after his departure. Wish him to be sure of employment. Speak of him as the gem of gondoliers and tell their friends to be certain to secure him. There is usually no difficulty in securing him. There is nothing elusive or reluctant about a gondolier. Nothing would induce me not to believe them for the most part excellent fellows, and the sentimental tourist must always have a kindness for them. More than the rest of the population, of course, they are the children of Venice. They are associated with its idiosyncrasy, with its essence, with its silence, with its melancholy. When I say they are associated with its silence, I should immediately add that they are associated also with its sound. Among themselves, they are an extraordinarily talkative company. They chatter at the traghetti, where they always have some sharp point under discussion. They bawl across the canals. They bespeak your commands as you approach. They defy each other from afar. If you happen to have a traghetto under your window, you are well aware that they are a vocal race. I should go even further than I went just now and to say that the voice of the gondolier is in fact, for audibility, the dominant, or rather the only, note of Venice. There is scarcely another heard sound, and that, indeed, is part of the interest of the place. 
There is no noise there save distinctly human noise. No rumbling, no vague uproar, nor rattle of wheels and hoofs. It is all articulate and vocal and personal. One may say indeed that Venice is emphatically the city of conversation. People talk all over the place because there is nothing to interfere with its being caught by the ear. Among the populace it is a general family party. The still water carries the voice, and good Venetians exchange confidences at a distance of half a mile. It saves a world of trouble, and they don't like trouble. Their delightful garrulous language helps them to make Venetian life a long conversazione. This language, with its soft delisions, its odd transpositions, its kindly contempt for consonants and other disagreeables, has in it something peculiarly human and accommodating. If your gondolier had no other merit, he would have the merit that he speaks Venetian. This may rank as a merit even, some people perhaps would say especially, when you don't understand what he says, but he adds to it other graces which make him an agreeable feature in your life. The price he sets on his services is touchingly small, and he has a happy art of being obsequious without being, or at least without seeming, abject. For occasional liberalities he evinces an almost lyrical gratitude. In short, he has delightfully good manners, a merit which he shares for the most part with the Venetians at large. One grows very fond of these people, and the reason of one's fondness is the frankness and sweetness of their address. That of the Italian family at large has much to recommend it, but in the Venetian manner there is something peculiarly ingratiating. One feels that the race is old, that it has a long and rich civilization in its blood, that if it hasn't been blessed by fortune, it has at least been polished by time. It hasn't a genius for stiff morality, and indeed makes few pretensions in that direction. It scruples but scantly to represent the false as the true, and has been accused of cultivating the occasion to grasp and to overreach, and of steering a crooked course, not to your and my advantage, amid the sanctities of property. It has been accused further of loving, if not too well, at least too often of being, in fine, as little austere as possible. I am not sure it is very brave, nor struck with its being very industrious, but it has an unfailing sense of the amenities of life. The poorest Venetian is a natural man of the world. He is better company than persons of his class are apt to be among the nations of industry and virtue, where people are also sometimes perceived to lie and steal and otherwise misconduct themselves. He has a great desire to please and be pleased. 5. In that matter, at least, the cold-blooded stranger begins at last to imitate him, begins to lead a life that shall be before all things easy, unless, indeed, he allow himself like Mr. Ruskin, to be put out of humour by Titian and Tiepolo. The hours he spends among the pictures are his best hours in Venice, 
and I am ashamed to have written so much of common things when I might have been making festoons of the names of the masters. Only when we have covered our pages with such festoons, what more is left to say? When one has said Carpaccio and Bellini, the Tintoret and the Veronese, one has struck a note that must be left to resound at will. Everything has been said about the mighty painters, and it is of little importance that a pilgrim the more has found them to his taste. Quote, Went this morning to the academy, was very much pleased with Titian's assumption. Unquote. That honest phrase has doubtless been written in many a traveller's diary, and was not indiscreet on the part of its author, but it appeals little to the general reader, and we must, moreover, notoriously not expose our deepest feelings. Since I have mentioned Titian's assumption, I must say that there are some people who have been less pleased with it than the observer we have just imagined. It is one of the possible disappointments of Venice, and you may, if you like, take advantage of your privilege of not caring for it. It imparts a look of great richness to the side of the beautiful room of the academy on which it hangs, but the same room contains two or three works less known to fame which are equally capable of inspiring a passion. Quote, the Annunciation struck me as coarse and superficial. Unquote. That note was once made in a simple-minded tourist's book. At Venice, strange to say, Titian is altogether a disappointment. The city of his adoption is far from containing the best of him. Madrid, Paris, London, Florence, Dresden, Munich. These are the homes of his greatness. There are other painters who have but a single home, and the greatest of these is Tintoret. Close beside him sit Carpaccio and Benini, who make with him the dazzling Venetian trio. The Veronese may be seen and measured in other places. He is most splendid in Venice, but he shines in Paris and in Dresden. You may walk out of the noonday dusk of Trafalgar Square in November, and in one of the chambers of the National Gallery, see the family of Darius rustling and pleading and weeping at the feet of Alexander. Alexander is a beautiful young Venetian in crimson pantaloons, and the picture sends a glow into the cold London twilight. You may sit before it for an hour, and dream you are floating to the water gate of the Ducal Palace, where a certain old beggar, who has one of the handsomest heads in the world, he has sat to a hundred painters for doges and for personages more sacred, has a prescriptive right to pretend to pull your gondola to the steps and hold out a greasy immemorial cap. But you must go to Venice in very fact to see the other masters who form part of your life while you are there, who illuminate your view of the universe. It is difficult to express one's relation to them. The whole Venetian art world is so near, so familiar, so much an extension and adjunct of the spreading actual, that it seems almost invidious to say one owes more to one of them than to the other. Nowhere, not even in Holland, where the correspondence between the real aspects 
and the little polished canvases is so constant and so exquisite, do art and life seem so interfused, and, as it were, so consanguineous? All the splendour of light and colour, all the Venetian air and the Venetian history are on the walls and ceilings of the palaces, and all the genius of the masters, all the images and visions they have left upon canvas, seem to tremble in the sunbeams and dance upon the waves. That is the perpetual interest of the place, that you live in a certain sort of knowledge as in a rosy cloud. You don't go into the churches and galleries by way of a change from the streets. You go into them because they offer you an exquisite reproduction of the things that surround you. All Venice was both model and painter, and life was so pictorial that art couldn't help becoming so. With all diminutions, life is pictorial still, and this fact gives an extraordinary freshness to one's perception of the great Venetian works. You judge of them not as a connoisseur, but as a man of the world, and you enjoy them because they are so social and so true. Perhaps of all works of art that are equally great, they demand least reflection on the part of the spectator. They make least of a mystery of being enjoyed. Reflection only confirms your admiration. It is almost a shame to show its head. These things speak so frankly and benignantly to the sense that even when they arrive at the highest style, as in the Tintoret's presentation of the little virgin at the temple, they are still more familiar. But it is hard, as I say, to express all this, and it is painful as well to attempt it. Painful because in the memory of vanished hours so filled with beauty, the consciousness of present loss oppresses. Exquisite hours enveloped in light and silence, to have known them once is to have always a terrible standard of enjoyment. Certain lovely mornings of May and June come back with an ineffaceable fairness. Venice isn't smothered in flowers at this season in the manner of Florence and Rome, but the sea and sky themselves seem to blossom and rustle. The gondola waits at the wave-washed steps, and if you are wise, you will take your place behind a discriminating companion. Such a companion in Venice should, of course, be of the sex that discriminates most finely. An intelligent woman who knows her Venice seems doubly intelligent, and it makes no woman's perceptions less keen to be aware that she can't help looking graceful as she is borne over the waves. The handsome Pasquale, with uplifted oar, awaits your command, knowing in a general way from observation of your habits that your intention is to go and see a picture or two. It perhaps doesn't immensely matter what picture you choose. The whole affair is so charming. It is charming to wander through the light and shade of intricate canals, with perpetual architecture above you and perpetual fluidity beneath. It is charming to disembark at the polished steps of a little empty campo, a sunny shabby square with an old well in the middle, an old church on one side, 
and tall Venetian windows looking down. Sometimes the windows are tenantless, sometimes a lady in a faded dressing gown leans vaguely on the sill. There is always an old man holding out his hat for coppers. There are always three or four small boys dodging possible umbrella pokes while they precede you in the manner of custodians to the door of the church. End of section two.